Hello, and you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and Sarah Ryan. This is the edition that will be going out on Friday the 8th of December 2023. And it is actually, it's the day when the Christmas tree is finally supposed to go up, Sarah, but I'm guessing yours has been up for about a month now. <laughs> We've had this conversation before. I was scolding Sarah. It's not, a, it's, not, it's not a month, but it's definitely a couple of weeks. Yeah, it is. And in fairness, in fairness, the listeners were on your side on that topic. Um before we get to the listeners, just to say what we'll be talking about in this podcast, are amongst other things, uh, Helen McEntee gave a definition of the far right today, having a survived a vote of no confidence. We've had uh, a week of interesting political developments from Sinn Féin uh, apparently to shift their views on immigration to the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council giving the government a ticking off and lots of other stuff in between. We'll be covering all of that and more over the next hour. Um, but first, Sarah, how's your week been in general? Has anything stood out to you? Anything exciting happening um a few things yeah my week has been fine i think um are you familiar with the concept of the mental load john no but i was just talking to another female friend of mine today who was who who, who broke, broke down the phrase emotional labor for me as it relates to christmas complaining that we men folk do nothing while they have to prepare all the stress about decorations and christmas parties and who's coming and blah 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 so but it's uh, not, it's not is, this, is this a similar thing yeah, but it's not just like Christmas is just like if you're the if you're the managing director of your household and your household includes children, especially children who are in school, the mental load of December is just on another level. Like it's collections for this teacher, collections for that teacher, collections for the the um, special needs assistance in the class, uh, collections for the football team, uh, a Santa walk, two different plays. Uh, carol singing for the school you know what i mean like it's like remembering every single minute thing we have two boys one of them is a reindeer in the thing in in the um in his play he's in first class had to go and get a reindeer costume the second one decided that that sounded like a great lark to get a reindeer costume so he told me he was a reindeer in his one as well turns out he's not found out yesterday he's actually a star john which means that he has to wear entirely white clothing do you have any idea how hard it is to find an entirely white outfit for a five-year-old boy very difficult quite difficult do you not just recycle his halloween outfit where i presume you put him in a sheet and cut eye holes in it no he was a black it was a black it was fully black he was a ninja so that won't work ah. so it's it's just it's the it's all the little stuff do we have a babysitter for this do we have a babysitter you know like it's a very difficult month and that's before i even cooked dinner for 16 people and blah 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 blah. so yeah yeah i on the other hand am a man so i don't and i also don't have any kids so i don't need to worry about that stuff um sit around so, and wait for somebody to give you a turkey sandwich do you yes that's exactly it buy Although, one gift for your wife and that's it yes well, well we do we also have a family chris kindle and i had a very embarrassing um, thing happened to me this year where, where we, we have a family Chris Kindle and I was in charge of putting all the names in the hat and having people draw them out of the hat and of course I drew a name out myself I up until the other day I had no idea who I pulled out of the hat so I've been going around quietly uh, asking everyone else who they have and trying to work it out by a process of elimination to figure oh. out who I actually have to buy a present for oh my god John so that's that's been my emotional load or whatever the phrase you used God love you. The mental load. The mental load is like refers to the like even there's a, there's a body of work involved in running a household that women disproportionately take on. I think it was a New York Times article originally that coined the phrase. And it's about that right now, 
you know, Keith is downstairs watching a kind of a World War II documentary and inside his brain is a hamster running on a wheel eating a packet of crisps, right? But I'm up here doing podcasts and I know that right now the lunches for tomorrow need to be made. We don't have any peanut butter left. The Christmas presents that I ordered for one of them, I need to make sure that that wasn't it accidentally delivered today. We need to get somebody to come and lift those large pots from the front of the house because the plants inside them have died. The gate is creaking and there's a door inside that needs oil on it. I have to collect the pictures that we got taken of the family tomorrow, but I have to be back in time to get one of them dropped off to a Christmas to a birthday party. And I need to fill out the waiver for that birthday party. So you have to kill it, fill out waivers for kids' birthday parties nowadays. Sorry, what? Yeah, because it's in a place that is like climbing and then they might fall and break their arm or whatever. And I also need milk and I also need to make sure that I have all the dinners in for tomorrow because we're going out and that means the babysitter needs etc. etc. You follow? Like there's a kind of a load of things that I'm trying to keep in my brain all the time that some men do it, but it predominantly disproportionately is women. And it's nothing to do with it's nothing to do with whether you work or not. It's that there's this load of body of work that women tend to carry more disproportionately that is on top of a job, if you know what I mean. My wife gets really annoyed with me when I talk about this kind of stuff because I, I kind of, you know, the, you, I think I don't know if we discussed it on the podcast before or not, but on, on TikTok and maybe Instagram reels, like one of the very popular genres is what you might call like relationship. Oh, it's done wonders for myself and Keith's relationship because we realise that we're really not unusual. Yeah, but my wife hates it. So (laughs) every time I'll show her a video of some lad joking about how he's forgotten to fill the dishwasher and his wife kind of going, oh, well, he's just a man. My wife hates it. She's like, don't show me that crap, that stuff that's just justifying your uselessness. And she's probably right. She has a a very strong point. Yeah, she does. Uh, I still secretly find it funny, though. (laughs) You're listening to this, honey. Sorry, it's still funny. Anyway, um, I don't want to run through comments from last week's episode too much uh, this week because, for once, Sarah, they were basically all very supportive, and I think that's there probably were so many. There were so many, and they were so nice. And um, I, I don't want to single people out by reading them individually. Um, I, I, I looked. And I looked do. For... Someone said I was a fine thing. I was delighted with myself. I got about three days of entertainment out of that. Yeah, I can't believe you found your husband your husband's other account um but um uh no one has yet said that about me and i don't anticipate that they will but congratulations you are Thanks. a thing there's no Thanks. doubt about that um, um uh there somebody also said that they like preferred you to your father which was a high compliment and then you know because as we said before he was a very fine politician and they think you're even better so even if I'll you do believe it. different things yeah yeah um, no, it was, there was a lot of comments and there was a lot of positivity and there was a lot of um, people who were very impressed with you for apologizing and, you know, like being, yeah, for apologizing and, and moving on and whatever. But there was also a lot of people who think that, you know, you were, you're, you were too apologetic and that you should have limited your apology. But anyway, it was all well. Good. This brings me to a relevant point um, because this week, obviously, what happened last week was that Grip published information that it had sourced in good faith and thought was accurate and everything else. Um, and uh, turned out that, that that it wasn't. And we bore the consequences for that. Do you know who else that happened to this week? Was uh, Helen McEntee, <laughs> um, who made a statement in the Oireachtas on Monday 
basically saying that X.com, which used to be Twitter and is owned by Elon Musk, had uh, refused to help the Guardi by taking down hateful posts during the Dublin riots. And so then X put out this statement saying, uh, no, this is nonsense. Uh, we didn't get any requests from the Guardi during the riots. We didn't get any requests from them until th- three or four days later. And they only actually asked us specifically to take down one piece of content. Um, so I asked the Guardi press office and I asked Helen McEntee's office, you know, uh, are X telling fibs? And what I got back was basically um, a non-denial that X were, were, to, were, you know, they basically did not say anything that contradicted what X had said. Helen McEntee's new line is that when she told the doll that Twitter.com had not deleted um, uh, various riot inciting or whatever messages they, the Guardi wanted to get rid of, uh, that uh, she was basing her information on what she'd been told by Guardi. Um, <laughs> so, and, and if that wasn't true, and the Garda Shiakana, in a statement to me, certainly didn't say anything that contradicted the X statement, then it looks like at least I was not the only person in the country to have been burned by bad information. But you are the only one who got called out for it. Well, that's that's to be expected. But uh, it's it's a little bit comforting to know that these things can happen. Uh, but anyway, what I wanted to talk about was not was not that specifically important, though it is. I wrote a piece on it during the week if anyone wants to go and read it, because I think there are serious questions there about whether the Guardian are making these requests formally or informally. But today, um, we're recording this on Thursday the 7th, Helen McEntee was in front of an Oireachtas committee when Senator Sharon Kogan asked her for a definition of what far right means. And her definition was strange, Sarah, to put it mildly. Um, she said it was, uh, as, it, as far as she was concerned, people who opposed the government, opposed the state, maybe opposed immigration and opposed women's rights. Now, depending on your definition of each of those things, women's rights, very vague topic. But it seems to me it's a definition that, that basically encompasses half the country. It was, it was very weak stuff. Um, and for somebody who's been talking about the massive threat the far right and inverted commas pose, to be asked to provide a definition and not to be able to provide a, help, a, a good one was, like, I'm sorry, it was laughable. Um, do, do you think she's even thought about it before? Well, that's a good question. I mean, so initially when I saw it, I was wondering, you know, I, I, <clears throat> I know Sharon Kogan. I'd, I'd say it's highly unlikely that she knew in advance that Sharon Kogan was going to ask her that. But has she thought about that question up until that moment? And has she pre-prepared that list? Or is that something that she just reamed off in the moment? And I think that that's, I mean, I'm not sure which of those two things, whether it makes that much of a difference. But I think it's 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 real evidence of you know what I always say, which is the lack of real thinking behind some of these statements that get thrown away, thrown around all the time and become part of the the discourse and become part of the kind of daily narrative about people who basically disagree with us uh, in Ireland. And the list she gave, like on a on a back of an envelope maths sum, John, to me, roughly encompasses about 75% of the population. If you include, you know what I mean, like anti-government, but sure, half the country is anti-government. And since when does anti-government make you, make you far right? I mean, that's that's the first thing I was like, anti-government makes you far right. I mean, fair enough. I think that they show all the time that they think that anybody who's against them is far right. That she's she's confirming my my fear, which was that they just call you far right if you don't agree with them. So that's for starters. But then by that rationale, Richard Boyd Barrett is far right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's 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 the first like taking that as the first thing. That's bizarre. 
Hmm. for starters. The funny thing is she said anti-state. And I was thinking about this during the day as well, because she said anti-government and anti-state. And anti-state would obviously take the politics out of it. You're just opposed to the Irish state. But if you think traditionally of the far right, like um, they are the furthest thing from anti-state. Yeah. They, like the, the the history of actual far right regimes. They 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 tend to be people who believe in wielding the power of the state. In a, they're not anti-state. You know, you, you you don't find a small government far righter anywhere in the world. These are people who tend to believe in um you know surveillance of their political enemies, of uh, cracking down on behaviors that they consider to be immoral or whatever. I mean, if you if you uh, nobody wants to use the Nazi Germany example, but if you if you look at Franco, who's probably a more kind of generic far right figure, um in in his thirty year dictatorship or whatever it was in Spain. If the anti-state, these people make the state your master in all respects. Um, yeah. Secret police, all this sort of stuff. Like the, the 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 idea that being anti-state makes you far right. It doesn't. Anti-state people tend to be libertarians and anarchists, not 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 far right in any way, shape, or form. And then the other example she gave, um, anti-woman. Well, look, we've got a proxy for that. I suppose might be the abortion referendum of twenty eighteen, where of course everyone works. But I could make a strong case to you today that a lot of the trans movement is anti-woman. Are they right wing too? Well, this is it. But 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 like we come on to talking about the referendums we're going to run later on. Um, yeah. uh, I mean that that the definitions there are so confused. It's I mean because we're we're having a referendum to take the word woman out of the constitution in the only place it appears, and that's being being promoted as a pro-woman referendum. But we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Yeah, but it's so broad and it's so vague. And this is the thing that, I mean, it's not just, we're not just dinging the minister here uh, for a verbal flub. I mean, this isn't, we've heard about the far right endlessly from this government. We're told in the Sunday Times a week or two ago that they're now a bigger threat to the state than dissident Republicans. And here's the, the state's most senior security official, the Minister for Justice, who can't give anything like a coherent definition of who these people are or what they actually believe. Um, just two days after she's somehow survived a motion of no confidence, which Fine Gael seemed to treat like a kind of shinner bashing festival and seemed to talk themselves into thinking that they, they persuaded the country or something because they won a vote in the doll. It was bananas. I mean, I love a shinner bashing session as much as the next gobshite, but yeah, I didn't really. I mean, and some of the contributions on that uh, against Sinn Fein were actually quite good in fairness. And there was a few TDs there that I hadn't heard from in a long time that I said, oh, look. He's awake. So fine. That's kind of besides the point. I think the I think words and definitions matter. And I, so I think that, you know, there's a there's a there's a difference between far right and right wing. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like so so the far right by by a basic definition of the word is an extremist way, you know, end of a spectrum of politics going in the right in that in the right direction it, you know right fine but like i believe in my core and i would be considered to be you know right wing let's say that the actual amount of far right people in ireland is actually quite small and i think <laughs> i think that you know if you that the the government have let, have have used the term as an umbrella term for such a wide amount of people that it's become an absurdity Far right used to be something, a term that would be kind of thrown at your feet of people like me um, or you. And it was considered to be a kind of an insult. And now it's become like a, it's they, they've accidentally diluted it down to such an absurdity, uh, absurd 
set of words that it doesn't mean anything anymore. No one knows what it means. I don't know what far right means anymore. Yeah, but I mean, uh, you said something interesting there. There's a difference between far right and right wing, and I, I would, I would. I would, I would go further than that, which is to say that Ireland doesn't even have a meaningful right wing in the traditional sense of what that term means. And if you think of, of, of the right politically over the years, I mean, the progressive Democrats are probably about as close as we got. Reduce yeah. the size of the state, privatize more things, prioritize um, entrepreneurship and low taxes and individual freedom and, and law and order and all that kind of good stuff. Irish people have never been particularly interested and it, we, we like as a as a society. I, I, by the way, I think this is a mistake. I think I think we probably should have a more centre right um, attitude to our politics. But we we like um, having. A, we used to like having a local health board that ran our local hospitals. We like having um, good schools. We like having the government uh, in a way that we can ring up the local councillor and go, "I want that playground fixed." And blah, blah. Mm. we like having access. We like having quite a large state and having access to it. That's so. I don't think there's a, there's even a, a right wing. In the but, traditional but, sense in Ireland. But my but, argument to that would be, John, that like if the last 10 years have shown us anything, it's that we should be mature enough to realise at this point that all of our parties agreeing and having a cosy consensus on 90% of the issues on the, uh, and, and those happen to be left-leaning means that like we should be mature enough to be able to say we could do with a, with the, the right, like a centre-right party that's actually offering alternatives and different ideas, if only to bring things, to pull things back to the middle. For sure, and 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 a good example of that is the fiscal advisory council and what it said about the budget. But again, we'll come to that uh, a, a little bit later on. But in terms of, can I offer just a, a, what I think the far right is because I think okay. it's, it's 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 really important. Like far right people tend to be people who believe fundamentally in a kind of lost a lost cause. Put it that way. So, so if you if you think about the 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 emergence of the far right, the the it tends to constantly hark back to a way things were that has been undermined by modernity. And if only we could go back and put in a strong man to un, to undo some kind of betrayal and restore a kind of sense of lost national glory, um, often by persecuting people who are seen as having undermined that, then we could restore national greatness. That that tends to be the broad theme of genuine far-right um, ideology. You saw it with Hitler and with Mussolini and with um, with with even, even the lad in Chile, whose name I've forgotten. Um, and we do have a little bit of that, and I do come across it. Um, and that is, I think, uh, quite, it, it's quite extreme. But where most people are in this country who are being called far-right is not that at all. Most people in this country broadly like Ireland as it is. They're proud of the country we are. They're proud of our, our, our nation and our history and our culture. And they're even quite proud in many cases of some of the liberalizing measures we take. And there's no one in this country, um, or at least no one of any significance, who wants to go back to the sort of days of the 1940s and 1950s where we were a totally homogenous country with one homogenous view and everyone lived in fear of offending the local authorities, whether they be religious or secular. There's no one who wants to go back there. There's a huge swathe of the country, though, that thinks that we have swung very rapidly and very quickly to an extreme form of liberalism and progressivism, um, and that has had real negative consequences, both in terms of immigration, our attitudes to crime. And we've talked about it before on this show, like there's, there's the attitude to criminals in this country tends to be that they're criminals because society has failed them, not that they've failed society as criminals. Like an attitude that antisocial behavior can be fixed if you just, you know, send in some social workers rather than sending in some police. Um, and, and 
you know, with, with with all the things that we're talking about at the moment, like the rapid advance of this transgender rights agenda, the 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 referendum we're going to talk about in a moment, all, all all of this stuff just strikes people as nonsensical and having nothing to do with their actual problems, while the overall direction of society makes their individual lives worse. You're not far right if you believe that. Um, but apparently that it's acceptable to call you far right, even though you're not somebody who thinks we need, um, you know, concentration camps for undesirables. It's 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 it, it, it's it's a hysterical discussion that has 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 dominated the political class for too long in this country, and it needs to be stood up to. And the fact that Sharon Kilgan asked that question today, and we got to see how bullshit the answer from the minister was, should wake people up. But they're never going to see it. They're never going to see that answer on RTE. They're never going to see it in Virgin Media. They're never going to hear it played on News Talk. That's the other unfortunate reality. Sorry, I ranted a bit. But no, that's fine. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, I don't know. I mean, I think that, like, to give Irish people their credit, I think a lot of Irish people walking down the street probably have a more nuanced description of what far right is than was okay. given. How would you define it as a matter of interest? Like, pretty similar to what you're saying. I mean, I think that, I think that in my mind, a far right person is a person who is extremely anti-immigration. Um, and like, just to keep to the topics that are like facing Ireland at the moment, I suppose, like very anti-immigration would have been um, extremely socially conservative on everything. Um, like the anti-state thing, no, not at all. I, I don't know where that even came from. I don't even think far right has anything to do with whether you're pro or anti-government because it really would depend on who was in government, surely. Mm-hmm. Um, what else? Like it's it's like it is it is it is hard to to describe. But what I would go back to is what I said earlier is that I don't think I've met a lot of people in Ireland that I would characterize as being far right. I, I suppose that the other thing you could say I is mean, that it's, it's, it's a, a vague it, image of what I, it is in my head. Like I have a clear image of what I think right wing is. Do you know what I mean? Like that's very clear to me. Do you know what I mean? Like what, what, I, like if you, if you name a policy, I could tell you in a, like where I think a, a right wing or a right leaning person would probably come down on, on that policy, but far right I don't really, I'm not 100% sure. I can give examples from other countries of, of, of you know, extreme examples. But in Ireland, I, I'm i not 100% convinced that there is a problem with the far right in Ireland. I think there's a problem with the far right if that's, and maybe we've come to the, like maybe we've solved the problem. I think there's a problem with the far right in Ireland if you think that the far right is people who don't agree with the government. I'll tell you, there's a massive problem with the far right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's that's that might well be the crux of it. I mean, what I what I I would say on this is 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 just two more things. First of all, uh, I think I think far right extremism is a little bit like the old definition of pornography that some U.S. politician gave, which is uh, I couldn't define it, but I know it when I see it. Um, and and secondly, I I think there's there's an element when you when anytime you depart from sort of democratic norms into thinking, you know, it's legitimate to overthrow the government or you know, we should shoot people or politicians should be hung or that kind of stuff, then I think you're into very dangerous territory and that that is where you might actually legitimately be called far right. Um, You know, that might annoy some listeners who might occasionally have thought, you know, various politicians deserve the noose in their more angry moments. There's a difference between thinking that when you're angry and thinking it genuinely in cold blood. Yeah, yeah. So so there's there's a difference. I mean, 
But yeah, none of we've just had a more detailed discussion on how you might define that than I think anyone in, in, in authority in this country has bothered to have with the public ever. And that's a problem. Because when they're talking about because it goes into the hate speech bill where they can't define hate to target the far right and they can't define the far right. Um and I mean it's 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 exceptionally illiberal and it comes from people who frankly haven't thought about this stuff. I mean Helen McEntee the big takeaway I have from her answer today, she hasn't thought about this. She's yeah. she's repeating a mantra. That mantra is the big bad far right. The big bad far right must be stopped. We must take action to stop it. Well, who in hell are you trying to stop? People who oppose the government. I mean, you sound like a fascist yourself, woman. Um, anyway, that it, it, it annoyed me a little bit. I think as well as that, like I find it very difficult to, to when I sit down and to, to define the far right as well. You find it difficult to define right, but that's why I don't throw it around all the time. Do you know what I mean? I don't. I'm not going around calling people. Like if you're the minister for justice and you're saying, as I said on the podcast last week when the riots came out, it was all this far right, far right, far right. You better be sure you're able to define what you mean. Yeah. And it turns out she isn't. Anyway, she isn't. Uh, look, where do you stop? Anyway, are you looking forward to next March 8th? It's international. <laughs> it's international well, women's. No, I'm Day. already a big fan of international women's nonsense. So, like, it's international women's. the high holiest day of the Irish secular calendar. Um, Just put it this way, John. Put it this way. You know, I have had my rants about International Women's Day and the nonsense corporates with their absolute virtue signaling crapola that they go on with about International Women's Day and, you know, giving gifts to the women in the office and everywhere. However, however, this International Women's Day, the gift that the people of Ireland could give to me would be to give the government the pacing that they are rightfully deserve on this nonsense and vote no against it. And that would make me, this woman, very happy on International Women's Day. Oh, well, I'm renaming it National Delete Women from the Constitution Day, which is what the government intend to do in their new referendum, which proposes to change the text of Article 4221, I believe. I don't have it in front of me, but I think it's 4221, um, which currently says that the, the state shall endeavour to ensure, or some nonsense phrase like that, that women are not obliged to neglect their duties outside the home by engaging in um, paid labour, essentially. Now, the first thing to say about that, I think, Sarah, is that uh, it, it was always a nonsense constitutional provision because endeavour to ensure commits the government to doing absolutely nothing. Um, mm -hmm. But they're, they're replacing it with this um, new clause, which says it's word salad. So it's something like um, uh, the government will in, you recognises the value of carers. Um, and uh, sorry, I'm just going to bring up the text. Oh, I'm looking for it. Yeah, I have it here, I think. Um, but uh, yeah, here it is. The state recognises that the provision of care by members of a family to one another by reason of the bonds that exist between them gives to society a support without which the common good cannot be achieved and shall strive to support such provision. Um I mean, strive. Yeah. Well, first of all, yeah, we should strive to support, which means you know we we, we do our best, lads. That's what we're putting into the constitution. Not a right for anybody. Not a commitment to do anything. Just a vague statement that carers are good, um, to replace the the role of the mother in Irish society. Um, and I wrote a piece about this during the week, and I said that you know, if they were, if it would be actually, I think, less offensive if they were just proposing to delete the, the the original provision altogether. I'd still vote no because I think it's stupid. But it would be less offensive than this nonsense. Because what they're essentially trying to do is is 
basically just to satisfy some cranks, make the concept of care in the home gender neutral in our constitution, which has no practical impact on anybody. Uh, the symbolic effect of it, I mean, the, the idea that symbolic effect should be considered a, a, something that's necessary to have a national referendum on is, to my mind, an absolute nonsense. Do something worthwhile for carers, many of whom are struggling and, and don't get nearly enough of the support that they need, rather than rather than doing what this government always does, which is hold a vote about how much we care for carers while doing nothing for them. Like it, it, It's offensive bullshit. Um, and, and from a government that has has kind of specialised in this crap for years. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm using a lot of kind of bad words this evening. And if we have listeners who are offended, I apologise. But it, it really is. It's offensive crap. Like, you've done nothing for carers of any for significance you. for years. For but, but now we're going to recognise them in the Constitution. Well, I'm sure they'll be delighted. Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, first of all, just at the top end, I've said this on the podcast before, but like, as someone who studied law, I, do, I, I, you know, I do, I do take exception to the hacking away at the constitution all the time when we feel like it. It's not supposed to be a have a go document that we keep kind of chopping away at all the time to suit whatever modern, like woke nonsense we're trying to portray. That's the first thing. Second thing is you're absolutely right that the care is thing or whatever. But there's 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 lots of things in here and like the, the the conversation will evolve over the next few months and there'll be more nuance. And I was actually speaking to somebody yesterday who's much more of an expert in the constitution and that kind of law than I am or probably ever will be. And he was saying that, you know, I was saying to him, like, what about things like, you know, the the like children's allowance and 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 things like that? Like, where do where does the you know, entitlement to children's allowance, the, the entitlement to children's allowance come from is, you know, like how does the constitution, is that right, you know, coming from that in the constitution? Do you know, do you follow what I'm trying to say? Mm -hmm. and, and also another thing is that like they propose to delete or to insert the words about the family, about the family, whether founded on marriage or on other durable relationships. Well, I mean, I think there's lots of different forms of families, John, don't get me wrong. But like, did we not have a referendum because civil partnerships weren't sufficient for gay couples because they yes. wanted to marry? And now we're having another referendum. That, And I, I, I accept that people will comment and maybe tell me that I'm completely wrong on this. But does that not mean, does this not mean that if it now says whether founded on marriage or on other durable, durable relationships, well, what's the definition? And we know they're light on defining things, but like, is there a definition for what a durable relationship is? Yeah, I have, I have serious questions of this. I mean, if God forbid um, my wife died in the morning and, uh, or indeed I died, I mean, yeah. we both have a durable relationship with our dog um, yeah. and it's a loving one. Uh, it does, does that count? Um is one man and his dog potentially a family? I, I, I think it's a fair question because they're not defined as human relationships. Uh, and you're you're a student of the law; you'll know that the law is interpreted based on the text. Um, you know, I I, I, I think that might sound like a nutty question, but I don't think it's it's a it's 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 and obviously deliberately an extreme and provocative one, but I don't think it's a stupid one. Um, what is a durable relationship? How do you define? I mean, there, put it this way: durable relationships break up every day of the week. I mean, they're, 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 the country is full of 16-year-olds dating other 16-year-olds who think they'll be together forever. Um, are they a family? This country is starting to be full of polyamorous, or not full of, but have polyamorous relationships as well. But, are well, they? but I think that's the point. Isn't that the point? 
like there's there's a, there's a, like one of the reasons for 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 saying other durable relationships is quite clearly to include uh, people in um, what was Ula Healy allegedly in, and then she denied she was in a throuple. Yeah. Um, uh, or uh, were, uh, uh, yeah. sorry, yeah, yeah. Um, with 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 two women and a man. One woman is hard enough. I don't know how he managed that, but um, or or or. or a, Quad, I think a quad is what you call four people in a relationship together. And I mean, clearly, once you put that into the Constitution, whether it is the specific intent or not, people in those relationships will be able to sue the state, saying our, our relationship should be recognized because we consider ourselves to be a family and we are in a durable relationship. That is an obvious, logical, and entirely predictable thing that will happen. Sue, um, the, sue the state for what? For recognition and protection. So see, there's questions. I mean, like, so Keith and I had a child um, and we weren't married um, for, we're married now, but we weren't. And there was a period where if he had died, like, because we were unmarried, the, I'd have to pay inheritance tax on the house that he left me. You know what I mean? There was all these kind of things. So there's, there's kind of tax implications and different things. Like this has more far reaching implications than it sounds like it does. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, another, another obvious example is that if, if Keith uh, were to die tomorrow, and, and God forbid such a thing should happen, you'd be entitled to a pension as a widow. Yeah. The widow's pension is around for, for years. Um, so if you are, for example, in a throuple or a quad or a quintuple, whatever these people say their relationships are, um, let, let's say, for example, um, my wife has a state job, so if she were to if she were to pass away early, her state pension would pass to me. That's something that happens when people are in state jobs. But if if there was another person in our relationship and we weren't married at all, um, would would we then both be able to claim for a share of that that pension? Because our you know we, though we weren't married, we we're in a durable, long lasting relationship, and one of our partners died. Are we then entitled to their? I mean, there's there's so many of these kind of financial implications as well. That there'll be no debate about it at all. It'll just what, be. But again, what does durable mean, John? Like durable? Are you in a durable, durable relationship if you're together for six years, six months, or maybe you were together for ten years, twenty years ago, and you got back together ten, six months ago? Maybe that's a durable. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just, it's, it's the. If there's no definition, what is it? Well, that's, uh, and I think the point is, it's, in, it's, it's intended to be as broad as possible for that reason. Um, but noticing as well on social media and stuff is the narrative beginning to emerge on the yes obviously side which is that acting as if this is just the removal of a um of a of a sexist thing that's been forcing women to you know only be recognized as having a duty within the home and now they're free and they can do whatever they like which first of all is news to me but second of all if that's it, well, good news in a way, I suppose. If that's the, the tack they're going to take, I think that's going to be a, 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 a failure. I think mm-hmm. that they're going to struggle to convince people, women in Ireland in 2023, or it'll be 2024, that this piece of constitution, that the constitution has been holding them back. I don't think they're going to, I don't think that's going to wash. But I don't, but I also think that it's, I never read it that way as a woman. Like I read it as that the state recognised that there was a value in that to the state. Do you know what I mean? But there's also a value. There's also, I'm sorry, and we've had that, and, and I, I'm, I'm going to go there, which is that I don't care whether it's mums or dads, and I don't have kids, so maybe I'm speaking without, um, but I'm speaking to somebody who, who is a stay-at-home mum, 
that's what you are. Yeah. And I think there's there's huge value in what you do. And there there are lots of people out there who don't have the choice that you have, or indeed people who I'm related to. Um, I have two sister-in-laws who, who, who stay at home with their kids. Um, and, and one of the things that struck me when I decided to do it, when I had my first child, and I've, you know, I've done work, bits of work here and there, but ultimately I've been at home for seven years. Um, and I've studied and done different things, but day to day I've been, you know, bringing the kids to school and picking them up every day. And, you know, I had a real kind of identity crisis in the very first couple of years of that of like, well, what is this now? Is this me or whatever? And one of the things that struck me at the time was how many of my female friends said to me that if they could do it and they could afford to do it, they would do it, but they couldn't. Not yeah. saying everybody, but I was quite shocked at how many people said to me, Oh, like one friend in particular who's a really successful career and still does and I remember her saying to me oh Sarah the dream I went down to a hotel with my a group of girlfriends and I was kind of you know it's a group of girlfriends that we only really catch up like once maybe twice three times a year and I was um I think I was pregnant yeah I was pregnant with my second child and, and they were asking me about work and I was like I'm not going to go back to work until both of the kids and I might have another or more um, are in kind of a full-time education system. And then even then it'll be a while. And I thought that they were going to be a bit kind of like, Oh, but like you're used to be so ambitious and you're this and you're that. And they were like fully like supportive and some, a good poor proportion of them jealous. Like one of them, as I said, one of them was like, Oh my God, that's my dream. I just can't, we can't pay our mortgage if we don't, we are not both working. So yeah. there's a lot of people who'd love to do it. And I always say, I think I'm privileged to be able to do it. It, it always struck me. And I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before. Um, the American voter who I met, who shocked me in 2016 by saying he was voting for Donald Trump. And I asked him why, because this, this was a guy who I thought was a really smart dude and who I thought would be appalled by some of Donald Trump's rhetoric. And what he said to me was that when he was growing up, one income households were the, were the standard in society. And that that is what people want, and when he uh, whether you know, that is what the majority want, whether they admit it or not, um, people, people the the uh, the idealized sort of American dream was always that one person in the household, usually the man, but not always, could afford to support his wife and kids on one income, and they could have a car and they could have a nice lifestyle. And he said that lifestyle is gone as a result of the economic model of the last thirty years, which he 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 ascribed to globalization and free trade. Uh, I don't know whether he was right or wrong to do so, but that's that was where he was coming from. And he said, this is being painted as progress, but in actual fact, we've taken a step back in our standards of living because people can't afford to do that anymore. And I, I think I think he's right. I'm sorry, but I do. I mean, we don't even have kids, and my dream is to get to a point where my wife doesn't have to work anymore because when she's at home, uh, I work from home, she's not. When she's at home, uh, my life is just so much better for, just for having somebody else in the house. Um, or somebody to bounce ideas off, or somebody to to sit down and have a cup of tea with in the middle of the day. Um, I mean, I, maybe I'm unique in a unique position because I work from home. But like, it, it, I think having a one, a one income household is is a legitimate aspiration for people, and most people it's out of reach for them. And rather than trying to bring that into reach for people, every policy of the state for the last 30, 40 years has been to push people out the door into the labour force. Um, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence, Sarah, that in that time, marriage breakdown has increased, um, you know, domestic violence has increased. All all the things that we associate with kind of stresses on relationships 
have increased. And I don't think people are as happy. They might be happier in other respects, but I don't think they're as happy um, with the economic model that we live in at the moment. Maybe, no, that, makes, I, maybe that makes me a dangerous far-right radical. But that, I, I, that's what I think. We'll never know because we don't know what that is. But um, like we, I also think that women suffer a lot in the especially in the early days if they have to go back to to, to work and put a child into a crash at six months that's a really difficult thing to do mm-hmm. really distressing and i have very good close friends who've had to do that and it's hard and they could they would prefer an alternative and so when i think about that fact that i'm 40 and i've got you know spent the last like seven or eight years with my female most of my female friends having children and, and all of the different kind of you know, economic and and personal and psychological fallout from that. I think that you know everybody sitting around clapping each other on the back, slapping each other on the back, and talking about how unbelievably great they are to delete this thing out of the constitution and replace it with something even more vague and nonsensical is a waste of time and resources. Nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted it. It's a you know somebody in some NGO came up with this idea as a concept or something along the way, and meanwhile all of the really like really life-changing pivotal suggestions that, that that could be made for things that would actually bottom line impact people's lives like you know tax back on childcare anything any anything to to help people um you know like a a higher way a higher um dole or a longer maternity i mean this the list is endless none of that will ever be addressed but let's all spend all of our time and all of our resources and all of our money huffing and puffing about this for the next six months because then nobody will notice that nothing else has changed mm. the last five the, the other thing, uh, as well as that, can I just say, is that it kind of offends me on behalf of Eamon de Valera. Because, <laughs> it, 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 no, it, and I, I'm by no means an Eamon de Valera fan, but like, I, I kind of feel like there's a this kind of, it, it's one of these, like, it's almost like a. I said it's like a in the piece I wrote. It's like a progressive renewal of baptismal promises. You know, we reject De Valera's Ireland's and all its works and all its empty promises. Um, you know, by getting rid of this this terribly sexist thing in his constitution, and I think to to consider it a sexist thing is to fundamentally misunderstand the intention behind the the yes. insertion of that article. He was not saying women's role is in the home. He's saying that in the country that we live in, in many families, women are are in the home. Not that's what that's where they should be, but that's where they are. And we value their work. It has value just the same as a man going out to work or anyone who goes out to work. Somebody who's staying at home looking after their kids is making just as big a contribution to society as somebody who's going to work in the biscuit factory. Um, I, 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 I read I, it. Hmm? That's the way I read it. Like if yeah. you were at the time of that writing, that was a compliment, a nod to your service to the state. Do you know what I mean? That just because, as you say, you weren't going out and working in a biscuit factory or doing whatever, the fact that you were staying at home raising, you know, and and it's a huge job to like raise the future children, the future adults, the future taxpayers of Ireland was a notable contribution to the state. That's the way I've always thought that that like read that. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, this won't be the last time we talk about it. We're going to have two and a bit months. I guess it won't be much this side of Christmas, but from January onwards, we're going to have two and a bit months of utter nonsense about this referendum. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe some of it will convince us, Sarah, but I'm, I'm, I'm sceptic, I have to say. I, I also think it'll be an interesting social experiment just to see what happens in ballot boxes because it's a while since the public had any way of, um, you know, displaying their discontent um, to the government 
And I think that a referendum that's held, you know, two months before local elections will be interesting. Well, I, I, I do worry. The cynic in me wonders if that's not why it's being held, to let the electorate blow off a bit of steam by giving the, giving the establishment a harmless kicking. Um, I think that that would, that yes, and I think that that would be a, a, a cynical but smart thing to do if the electorate had some steam. But I think the electorate have, have a hot wave of fiery lava, so I don't think a little bit of steam is going to make much difference. <laughs> well, we shall see. Anyway, speaking of people who were not impressed this week, the electorate are not on their own. The Irish Fiscal Advisory Council um, gave the budget uh, what I think could be fairly described as an awful kicking. Um, they basically said, uh, in so many words, that the, and sorry, I'm looking to see exactly what they said, but they said in, in, in so many words was that the government were behaving pretty much like the last time you were lost, Sarah, were in government, um, by spending uh, loads of money and cutting taxes and blowing massive holes in the budget and doing everything all at once. And uh, they basically said, wait till the recession comes along and you have to cut everything, lads, we warned you. Um Fairly unprecedented intervention for the IFAC to make. Can I ask, just maybe this is a stupid question, but why are they coming out today when the budget was ages ago? Well, I suppose in their defence, uh, they, 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 they obviously didn't have sight of the budget ahead of time. They, they, they sent in their recommendations for the budget was, and then they would have had to uh, analyse it and so on and so forth. Um, and maybe they thought that uh, Thursday in December was a was a quiet day to announce it, and they'd get some press coverage. That might have been an element of uh, an element of it as well. Uh, but Fair enough. it's also there. I, I don't know. That's idle speculation on my behalf. Yeah. But just to, to say what they said, they said that the the government is taking a quote everything now approach of tax cuts, a ramp up in spending, and current spending increases, which repeats Ireland's past mistakes. It says it entails using strong tax receipts in good times to expand the budget quickly at the risk of adding to price pressures, i.e. for those of us who don't know what they mean there, inflation, getting bad value for money, i.e. we're spending so much money all in one go that, that people like plumbers and and electricians and what have you can charge the government what they want for working on all these houses that they're building and potentially having to reverse measures in a downturn. In other words, if the economy contracts, uh, it's Cupsville population us. Um, and it says that they have breached the national spending rule that the government only agreed in 2021, which had the aim of in, in keeping increases in spending to 5% or lower. I think politically, Sarah, the significance of this is it's going to be very hard for the government to turn around and accuse Sinn Féin of, of, of fiscal irresponsibility in an election with that kind of report card uh, from the Fiscal Advisory Council on their own record. Right. Well, I suppose they're probably going to do that anyway, John. But I mean... I don't know. I mean, I like. I thought. I don't know what I think about this. I think it's a weird time for it to come out. I think it's probably uh, like I'm not enough of a kind of a financial critic. Critic, we'll say, to to be able to actually drill down into any of those details and 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 say. I think from a political point of view, yeah, you're right about Sinn Fein, but also I think that they don't care because they don't have any. They don't have enough political, you know. Um, basically capital to be to be doing anything but seem to be doing what people want even though they're not because they're just so unpopular on every other level that any you know cuts and and you know tightening our belts just wouldn't wash and they know it 
Yeah, but at the same time, it's not. It can't all be about popularity because they're introducing some things that are deeply unpopular. Did you see the thing during the week? Um, I'm sorry, we didn't. Sometimes before this podcast, Sarah and I generally have a conversation about the things we might talk about, but there's always things that come come up on one of our minds uh, during the show that we didn't mention. So I'm going to throw one at you now. Do you see the thing during the week about how they're introducing this new proposal or, or this new law in, I think, February, whereby every time you buy a plastic bottle, you have to pay oh, a twenty. <laughs> a 25 cent levy, and then you only get it if you bring the plastic bottle back to the shop. I mean, talk about inflicting senseless misery on people. Like, we like we don't all have green and recycling bins as it is. What's... Well, actually, John, I think we mentioned a couple of weeks ago on the podcast that when you actually, when you put an apple dryer into your green bin, it turns out it's going to the incinerator. <laughs> That's right, you did. You did. There was a story along those lines, all right. But just in general, I mean, your point, which is that the government is spending all the money because they're not like, to, to kind of like try and bribe the electorate, but they keep inflicting all these things that are just, I, I, there's no other word for them other than just annoying on people. Like I, I, I don't think like I, I think I don't see it like that. I don't think that like yeah, the thing with the cans and bottles and bringing them back and getting a levy and all this nonsense. But then I read somewhere today that it's not really a let. You get a voucher back. You don't get money and all this crap. But anyway, um, I think that like there's there's two ideological missions within the government, and one of them is the green one, and one of them is the rest of them, and that the greens get these little things, you know, that they're allowed to, um. And this is one of them. I don't think this has like been thought out by like I don't think that there's there's a huge push at cabinet for this. I think this is just a tidbit that the Greens are pushing. Yeah, but I feel sorry for like because because when the general election comes or even the local election comes, some poor eejit of a local Finnegaler or Finnefaller is going to knock on my door, and it's going to be some really well-meaning, nice person who's probably good in their community and has nothing to do with the government's decision and has been a member of his party for 20 years. He's going to knock on my door and tell me, ask me for my vote and I'm going to go, see that box of plastic bottles over there that you maybe collect? That cost me your vote. Um, and they're going to go, well, that was a green thing now in fairness. And I'm going to say, well, I don't care because you could have stopped it and you didn't. So I, I don't know if that, that works. running in the local... I, in John's area, just make sure you check the name before you knock on the door and avoid yourself this horrendous little conversation. Well, I think it's very important never to be rude to canvassers, but I, I, I also think it's important to tell them exactly why you're because they do feed things back. Politicians know what comes up on doorsteps. It, it, uh, and when they knock on your doors, you, you have to give them a piece of your mind in a, in, in a nice and respectful way because bear in mind the person. And I think both Sarah and I have been this soldier in the past. The person who knocks on your door is not the person making decisions in Dublin. They're not to blame. But, no. And but, also, no matter what they say, you still have to say great reception on the doors tonight. Yeah, exactly. That's cold, that's outside, cold outside, but warm reception on the doors. <laughs> that's the rule. That's the law of, our, of Irish politics. Even if you get your R's handed to you for the entire evening. No, no. Warm reception on the doors. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think the can all these kind of like little things are. I just blame the Greens, but it's you're right. Like from an election point of view, it's relevant, and that'll be the same. You know, the I, I there's a lot of people I know who I'm very very fond of, who are councillors or are running for the first time or the second time or a whole combination of people running in the local elections, and not just for Fianna Fáil but also for other parties. And I feel really sorry for them because I think a lot of them are going to not get elected and not get elected for reasons that are absolutely nothing to do with them nothing to do with the work they've done and only to do with the decisions that are being made by people at the senior level of their parties who are planning on leaving as soon as possible to other jobs or better places and 
and um, these guys will be really disappointed and it's very unfortunate. Speaking of which, Pascal Donoghue is, is apparently considering uh, uh, heading off to run the IMF. Um, and, uh, you know, Pascal's kind of an interesting character because a couple of weeks ago I had this and then I re- and then I, I, I realised what was happening to me. Um, do you remember he was asked about um, whether he takes responsibility for, he was asked by, by Ben actually, mm. um, whether he takes personal responsibility for, what was it again? Um some failure. Some, some failure anyway. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, you know, well, I take responsibility for the good things. So, I, yes, I do take responsibility for, for when things go wrong. It was actually I, the riots. It was the riots. I think it was, right, right. he was asked if he would take any responsibility for kind of like the state of the inner city and this lawlessness, given that they've been in government for so long. And he said, yeah, he did. And he said he did. And I was so impressed. I and, thought, then, and then oh this week, God. this this week, actually, Fatima, um, went along to Dunleary and uh, asked him, she actually was supposed to ask him initially about the about all this budget stuff, but somebody else asked that. So she asked him instead uh, about the COVID pandemic and whether, because Boris Johnson apologised this week for the mistakes the British government had made during COVID. Um, so she asked him if, if he would apologise. And once again, he said, he said, yeah, he didn't say I apologise, but he said, look, I was one of the people who made those, made those decisions and I take responsibility for them. And it's just... Um, for all that I disagree with him on policy, it's so refreshing and so disarming when a politician says, yeah, I made those decisions, hold me to account for them, whether you agree with them or not, I made them in good faith. That, that's, but that's the point I was going to make, that I was like, wow, like he's so good, like he's 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 owning up to it. And and then after a couple of days of kind of partially being in love with Pascal, I realised that like the bar is now low, so low, John, that someone even just saying, yeah, maybe I take some responsibility as a person who earns a, a very good wage to be in charge of this stuff. Yes, I take some responsibility for what, like, that's, we're just, we just have PTSD or something. We're, yeah, we're, you're, you're like a woman, you're like a woman who's been on so many bad dates that the moment a guy holds the door open for her, she's like, he's the one. Falls at his feet because she thinks he's, the, yeah, <laughs> that's, I realized after a couple of days, I was like, okay, Sarah, well, calm down. Like you just said, he takes responsibility for it. That should be the, that should be a given. <laughs> I'm like oh my god I love him so much he's so great um but anyway I I I checked myself and realized that him taking some accountability for what's happening in the country when he is in charge or you know part of the group of people who are in charge is probably pretty low bar but um yes he is now rumored to be um in line for the head of the IMF job which is um good for him interesting um I'd say the government, the last thing the government wants is a by-election. Um, Particularly in Dublin Central. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, that. like, I don't even know what, I wouldn't even, you'd really have to see the candidates, but like that could go anyway. There's also, anyway. by the way, even if he, if forget the by-election, there's a, there's a, I think there's a real open question as to whether Fine Gael would have a hope of holding that seat with anyone else. I mean, there's, there's a, there's a, there's a. Oh, no, I don't think that's a question. I think the answer to that is no. Well, I was going to say they, they have a local councillor on the ground called Ray McAdam, who's been working very closely with Pascal for years, who's a, a very capable individual who I think probably should have been a TD years ago, except he's in the wrong neck of the woods for that. Uh, but I, even at that, I don't think in this environment that somebody who's not a sitting TD from Fine Gael or a minister could hold a seat in Dublin Central. Maybe I'll be proved wrong on that. But yeah, so I don't think I don't think his party would want to see him go. And also because they're not exactly overflowing with talent at the cabinet level, fortunately. No, and he is talented. I mean, in fairness, like he is quite good. Um, you couldn't fault him intellectually, I don't think. But I don't think it's about Ray McAdam. I'm sure is very comp- competent, very capable person. I just think you know, 
Conor McGregor underneath the Fine Gael logo wouldn't probably get elected in Dublin Central. So nobody, nobody will. It, that'll be a that'll be a protest vote, and it could be anybody's to win, but it won't be won by any of the government parties. That's for yeah. sure. Mary Fitzpatrick might be praying that Mary Fitzpatrick, was long-serving Fall senator for that area, might be hoping that if he goes then as the most high-profile government uh, representative in the area, you might finally get a Fall gain, Sarah. Thank you. I'd say Mary Fitzpatrick is on her knees hoping and praying that Pascal does not go to the IMF. Because <laughs> I'd say she does not want a by-election. Like, oh, by-elections are grim. Like, they're, they're very, very, very intense. They're very, you know, if you run in a general election normally, ever half, you know, not half the country, but hundreds of people are doing the same. If you're running in a by-election, the focus is all on you. It's, you know, it's the party win, but it's your failure. You know what I mean? Like... Mm-hmm. I I would not imagine Mary Fitzpatrick is hoping for that whatsoever. Well, look All of the parties and their canvassers would get nothing but yeah, dogs. And it, it's also very nasty. Look what happened to the Fine Gael guy in the Dublin South East by election a few years ago. I can't actually remember his name, but yeah, he, he was subjected to a a, a horrible personalised campaign um, to to take him out. And um, luckily, though, the the by election in question was won by Ivana Bacic, and she's really like absolutely changed the profile and dynamic, and and the entire face of politics since she became a TD and the leader of the Labour Party. John, Sarah, your sarcasm is unbecoming. <laughs> anyway, um, I did want to mention because just there are stories like this that we don't mention, uh, which I think is, uh, and I alluded to it earlier on. Um, the the Guardian had a press conference this morning again Thursday the the seventh of December, uh, and they said. They, they produced actually quite a shocking figure, Sarah. They said that there have been more than 54,000 reports of domestic violence made to Gardaí this year, which is an 8% increase on the same period in 2022. I mean, you and I are both lucky that we are in happy relationships, um, mostly. But, I mean, that is an astonishing figure. I mean, that is, I haven't worked it out, but it's, it's, it's hundreds of people reporting that crime every day. Uh, like, Population increase. You know, population increase is part of it, but even at that, it's an astonishing instance. Like, is there is there something that we're not talking? I mean, because people on the sort of right side of politics, and this is, I think, a mistake that people on the right side of politics make, tend to ignore these stories. It tends to be the domain of the left. That you know, you have the Labour Party argument, Social Democrats argue, everyone are saying, "Oh, we need more intervention and we need more funding for women's shelters and all this kind of stuff." And I think the left the, the, kind of owns that political and cultural space and the right too often has hardly anything to say about it. I agree. Uh, um, like there, there are people up and down the country who are suffering in their homes in terror according to this according to this set of figures and obviously there's the proviso that domestic violence can range from somebody having a row where a, a, a vase gets thrown at somebody's head which is entirely unacceptable by the way but on the lower level um, to somebody being in fear of their lives on a constant basis. But I, I it's, it's also really important that to to note, um, and I know somebody personally who was a victim of this, that domestic violence can be perpetrated perpetrated by women on men. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. It's it's not talked about that much, but it very much exists and it's 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 much more, I think, taboo and really, really distressing for for the men involved. What I will say is, in my adulthood, I have been, especially in the last kind of five years, and I don't know if this is because people are becoming more open about it or what, but I've been quite surprised and alarmed by the the amount of instances of this I've come across. 
in people, in couples that I have interacted with in some kind of social setting. I don't want to say anything else. Like, you know what I mean? I don't want to say anything. No, of course not. Um, There's been more than five couples that I have, you know, come across where that has been going on in some way. And I've been very shocked by that. I think it's more common than you think. Yeah. And the other one, I mean, I, you, you come across as well, kind of, because um, domestic violence can range, obviously, from somebody literally slapping somebody across the face to, to the, to the, to the, which is horrible and awful, to kind of sexually coercive behaviours and all that kind of horrible stuff. Yeah, I suppose I'm just talking about hitting. Yeah, um, but I, I, I just think as a society we, we have we've lost something. Something, something has like I, I can't put my finger on what that something is, but I do feel like there's sort of a general degrading of the value of human dignity in our society that's been happening for a very, very long time. That is not to say that the society from which we have evolved didn't have its very dark secrets and its horribleness. Of course it did. But I kind of feel like there's, there's like, there isn't a week that goes by that I don't see some kind of video posted online, either from Dublin or Cork or maybe even a city in the UK of like somebody just punching somebody on the street. And sometimes that's men just randomly punching women, which I think is just the most, like, I, I'm old-fashioned, and I make no apology for it. I just think that's about the scummiest thing you can do. Like, hit somebody and hit you back. One thing of it's self-defense, and you've absolutely no other option. But I, I just think there's been just a general devaluing of sort of like the importance of old-fashioned masculine values of being gentlemanly and chivalrous. I probably sound like a dweeb for saying that, but I really do think there's a there's an issue there. Do you not think that like domestic violence was happening in the times when men were like that as well? Like, of course it was. Of course it was. But I, I think there's there's no. Uh, there have always been brutes, um, but I think this kind of like I, I can't put my finger on it. Maybe I'm not articulating it as well as I I might because I haven't fully thought it through. But to me, just looking at our society, I feel like there's sort of like the the social capital that goes with being seen as a a gentleman has been diminished. That's that's probably the best way I can put it. And I think that has had some consequences. And that's obviously not the whole answer, but I, I feel like it's a real thing. Yeah, I mean I think it's 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 um there's a kind of a like the, the, the inter it's like there's there's a whole thesis in this, but like the interactions in between men and women have changed, the way they meet, whatever. I was literally at the hairdressers recently and there was two hairdressers and me left at the end of the night and they were both single and they were talking about like the difference you know why they're not on dating apps and what it was fascinating conversation and and you know the the men in their kind of 25 to 30s these days compared she one of them was just like she's like i just want someone like my dad like an old school gent kind of guy and she's like now and you go to nightclubs these guys and it's all about what they look like and their hair and their tan and their clothes and they're so into themselves and it's boring and blah blah and it's just a really interesting like I was like thank god I'm not single but it was a really interesting thing about how like you know the the entire kind of like way in which men and women interact and way in which they meet has changed but I think that domestic violence is, is as old as, as, as time and, and people who do it, they, they show one mask to the world and they might look like a gentleman, but they're, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a huge, so, truth, so huge amount of truth in that. I, I get what you're talking about, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it's way more 
layer has way more layers and i think that it comes from i think some elements of it are you know it runs in families and it goes down through generations and you know people who see it do it um and i think that alcohol is a huge part of it um so i think there's loads and loads of layers to it and it's really complicated that i also think that like while the numbers might look like they're going up i'd question whether we're getting more accepting of people reporting it and talking about it you know like that that years ago you just accepted it you didn't tell anyone Mm. you know i mean you might talk to your there was certainly no recording of it in the same way as there is now and nowadays there's more recording of it as is you know as there should be but that you know it isn't something that people kind of like whisper about and then move on like people are more likely to call it out and talk about it and 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 confess that it's happening to them so that is a good thing but that obviously makes the numbers bigger i don't know but i definitely i I, I also think i also i i wonder what you do about it I mean, it's it's one thing to to count all the numbers and, and encourage people to come forward, and I'm not saying that's wrong. That's entirely something we should be doing. Of course. But I I wonder what you do about it is the question. I mean, to me, it does come back to a question of values. I mean, I, I think that, and I'm going to say something here that I, I want people to understand what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying that anyone is a failure if they don't do what I'm about to suggest uh, or anything like that. But I, I think if I had a daughter, the the one thing I'd be saying to them is that in any romantic relationship you have, the moment there's even a hint that you feel physically threatened, you leave, you go. Um, and I wonder if there's more that we can be doing to 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 make this a, a, a complete and utter social taboo where people understand that once it happens, you get out of that relationship, whether you're a man being beaten by a woman or vice versa. Um, but I think bullies, like, this is the thing. And like, you know, again, like there's a whole thesis in this, but like, I think a lot of women, you know, like there's bullies and they, they're, there's, you know, like your boyfriend or your husband punching you into the face doesn't happen, very rarely happens one night without any prior, prior events or shows of violence. Like these people tend to be coercive, controlling people who who make who uh, like very commonly isolate people from their friends and their family slowly over time. Like there's a whole, you know, element to this that's very insidious that goes on for a long time. You know, people who are vulnerable. I think that and there's loads of things you can do about it. I literally read an article this week by a woman um who was confessing in the article that she'd been physically abusive to her husband for years and how they were still together and that she'd gotten help and therapy and, you know, to control her rage and her anger problems and that she had like managed to overcome it and they were still together. And it was kind of really interesting. I Like I'll try and find it. I don't know how I, I must've come across it on Twitter, but like, I think that there's that people getting acknowledging there's a problem and getting help is one thing. I also think that, you know, like we, we, it's you're right that it's all very well to say to your daughter. Obviously, say to your daughter, you know, if you feel like this person is going to get violent, I just don't think it shows up like that. Mm. Yeah, I, I have absolutely no expertise in this area. It's just the, those figures shocked me, and I thought they were worthy of um, discussion. And, 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 you're, and you're right that people, you know, that like there are certain topics. You're absolutely correct, and I'd never thought about it until now that there are topics that the left kind of almost acts as are as if they're their own. Mm-hmm. And this shouldn't be one of them because it's a universal problem and it should be called out and talked about more. But I think it's a multi-layered problem and I think it requires multiple layers of solution. And some of them are, you know, like um, I saw somebody talking on on Twitter just this week about, you know, 
teaching people about you know course of control and, and and the types of kind of gaslighting and different things that people can do to you maybe from their teenage years not introducing women to it this kind of stuff when they're 25 do you know what i mean yeah and i do think by the way I, I, you know there there are elements of the the, the proposed reforms to sex education curriculum which i think are revolting and disgusting and stupid but i think this is a kind of thing that that really kids should be taught about from an early age but anyway, as I think we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you still have to um, figure out about your peanut butter. Yeah. And what, what else? Give us the list again. Oh, God. No, it's gone. This is a problem as well. There's a great, the, like, I, I, I had a dictaphone there for a while. And as the things came into my brain, um, you know, I would just record them on the dictaphone and then I'd play the dictaphone back to myself at the end of the day and write them all down. And now I can't find the dictaphone. So well, that, I think I think that for, failed for, as a plan for all our humor. What you should do now is you should go downstairs to your husband, interrupt his World War Two program, and go, Keith. Remember, I told you earlier on with all that list of things I had to do. Can you just read it back to me there? Yeah. No. Well, you he, he, he'll, abs- he'll absolutely panic. He'll believe that you said it to him. He wasn't listening, and he'll make it up. Yeah, Guarantee he, it, because that's what I do. The thing is, it's not even these aren't even things that it would even occur to him. <laughs> like even. When you were talking earlier on about people living together and, and, and civil partnerships and marriage and, and inheritance and people dying or whatever, you're like, so say Keith dies tomorrow. I was like, well, he certainly won't die from being suffocated under the mental load. That's for sure. <laughs> we'll have to get him back on some week um, to explain Oh my God, so we were actually out for dinner last night with some people and uh, uh, Politico people. And I, I said to you earlier on that they are all they all listen to the podcast and they, but they were, you know, Plomoss and Keith and saying that still to this day their favourite episode ever was the one that Keith and he was delighted with himself yes. delighted with himself well my yeah. wife my wife flat on flat out refuses to come on which is to my immense benefit because as it is I get to reveal kind of negative stuff about my domestic behaviour in a kind of controlled environment and I'm worried someday she'll come home and find the dishwasher open and say I'm coming on the podcast that evening and that'll be the end of my career that'll be yeah. over be done or you'll never be able to put the kind of like you know like light comedy spin on your really irritating behavior well that's exactly it isn't it all right folks uh, thank you so much as always for listening to sarah and i waffle on for an hour i hope you got some value from it uh, we get immense value from your listening and your comments last week was for various reasons i think the most listened to episode we've ever had so hopefully we'll retain some of that audience this week and we haven't put you all to sleep sarah and i will be back uh, next week as ever but until then That was another edition of The Week That Really Was. See you soon.